Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. For the last several weeks, we have been talking about the issue of generosity and giving and those kind of things that Paul wanted to address with the Corinthians. But now as we come to chapter 10, the subject changes. And the subject that we're going to be addressing here this morning is that concerning authority, spiritual authority. One of the definitions Webster's gives to the word authority is this, and I quote, it is power or influence. Notice it doesn't say power and influence, but it says power or influence, and I think that's an important distinction of sorts. Because as I've reflected on it, I've discovered that really all authority flows from either one or the other of these two sources, either from power or from influence. For instance, let's say, uh, I'm sure this has not happened to many of you all here, but let's say that uh, you notice one day as you're driving in your car that there are some blinking, flashing red lights behind you. And uh, so you pull over and a gentleman gets out who's got a uniform and a badge. And as he begins to approach your car, you begin to feel the power of his authority, don't you? In the uniform that he wears, maybe in the badge that's on his chest. And if that's not good enough for you, maybe in the gun that he's wearing. You know, some of us need a little more uh, attention-getting mechanisms. But whether or not that's true, the point is, is that in that moment, because of the symbols that he has within himself, you know that he is commanding your attention. Because the power that he represents and the power that's behind him. Now just for the sake of furthering that illustration, let's say you were traveling down the same street And Joe Smith in his pickup truck, who you've never seen before, he pulls you over because he's mad that you're speeding. I would bet that your response to Joe would be totally different than your response to that police officer. Some of us may be more responsive than others, quite frankly, to Joe and his, you know, arrogancy that he would pull you over and call you down for speeding. On the other hand, if Joe was one of your best friends, and Joe was a person that you had known for a long time, maybe he was uh, in your community group, or he's someone that you had really admired and uh, you knew real well, you knew he was a man of real integrity, then Joe would have command from you a totally different response, wouldn't he? he? He would carry a sense of authority when he pulled you over, just because of your knowledge of him. Now, he wouldn't pull a gun on you, and he doesn't wear a badge, but Joe has authority in your life. And that authority is one of influence, not power. Do you know the New Testament makes that very same distinction in the words that it chooses for the word obey? And oftentimes we can't see these distinctives because we just use it in our New Testament obey. But for instance, children are told to obey their parents. In the New Testament, slaves are told to obey their masters. 
Christ, He'll command from time to time certain people, even the elements like the wind and the sea, and it says, and they obeyed Him. Hupakuo is the Greek word. And that word means that one is under the power of the person who gives that instruction. They are answerable to that person. They are subject to that person. And the reason for that is because if you think about it, whether it's parents or masters or whether it's even Jesus in commanding the creation that He controls, He not only has the power over that creation, but He has the force, just as parents do, to threaten those or to punish those who disobey. Hupa kuo. Well, you're in 2 Corinthians 10. You might stay there, but I want you to keep your finger there and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Because there's a different word for obedience, though you won't see the distinctive in your English New Testament, but it is important for us to notice this because it has great weight on the subject we're going to look at this morning. This is one of those things that is difficult to read because you might think I have a hidden agenda when I read it. But I read it because in the world in which we live, there's a tremendous resistance to any kind of authority in our world today. And that's particularly true and particularly awkward when it comes to spiritual authorities. And yet here Paul says, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 13:17, he says, obey your leaders. He's talking about spiritual leaders. And he goes on to say, and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Well, you look at that word obey, and maybe the first thought you had is that hupakuo. Does that mean I'm under the power of, answerable to? Is there a threat of punishment if I don't? Well, no. As a matter of fact, the word here for obey, and you might just note that, is the word patho. It's from the word that we get our English word, persuade. And what Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is he's saying when you're to obey your leaders, it's an influence kind of authority that comes by being confident in them. Having trust in them. Being won over or persuaded by them. It's not one of power with the, with the threat of force, but it's one of influence with the persuasive power of truth. That's the kind of power that a church leader has or a spiritual leader has. In Acts 26-28, where Paul is confronted or brought before the civil authorities, in fact, he stands before King Agrippa and is being questioned by this secular king about his faith. And he begins to share that faith as he moves on as only Paul could, logically presenting a defense of his faith Suddenly, King Agrippa interrupts him and says, Stop! If you go on, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Patho. And yet, in that moment, we see those in those two men two different kinds of authority, don't we? 
Here's a king, King Agrippa, and he's a secular authority, and he has the power of punishment and force. He has soldiers at his command, and yet at the same time, he's being influenced by another authority who has the persuasive ability of truth. Most all the church's authority, if it's true authority, true spiritual authority, comes through that channel of persuasiveness, of truth, of integrity. It's an influence kind of power, or authority rather. The problem is, is that most of us are too easily influenced, aren't we? And oftentimes by the wrong reasons. And that's what brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because these Corinthians, though Paul was an apostle, these Corinthians are being influenced for the wrong reason. And it's going to be this issue of his authority in their life that we'll track through chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, all the way to the end of the book. You know, it's not hard to discern by reading these chapters as you would move through them that these Corinthians were being seduced, at least a group of the Corinthians. Whether it was the whole church, we don't know. But they were being seduced by one or more false teachers. But what is clear is that these teachers had influenced these people in Paul's absence to a point that they were now questioning Paul's credibility, Paul's authority, even Paul's apostleship. And boy, how difficult that put him in a position. What a difficult position that put him in. You can imagine if you had led somebody to Christ and you had discipled them and you had influenced them about the way they should live, and then as you were away for a short period of time, someone else who had lesser than pure motives, but who had captured, but who captured their attention, was beginning to lead them astray. And you come in and you find yourself in a real difficult position because you're wanting them to come back under your authority because you really want what's best for them. And yet, how do you do that? Do you see the agonizing process Paul's in? He's, he's, he's not a lawyer who can give a court order, a summons to appear before a judge. He doesn't have that kind of power. He can't pull a gun on him like a policeman. He can't call out troops like a head of state could. His authority is by persuasion with truth. And that's why he writes this letter, these last four chapters. He's trying to persuade them to move away from these people who were misleading them as regards the true faith of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at chapter 10. And I'm actually going to start at verse 7. We'll come back and look at verses 1 through 6 in a moment. But we're going to start at verse 7. He says, You are looking, you Corinthians, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say, that is the false teachers, 
His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. And his speech, well, it's downright contemptible. Let a person consider this, Paul says, that when we, what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we also are indeed when present. Now, because we're picking that up, there are probably some things that are difficult to understand, but Paul is in fact defending himself, and I almost feel the embarrassment with him, that he would have to defend himself. He who has served these people so sacrificially, and yet at the same time as he defends himself, he gives us some really interesting insights into spiritual authority. One insight that he'll give us is how you document spiritual authority, how you recognize it. I think another insight he'll give us is how you measure spiritual authority. Let's look, first of all, how you document it. You see, these Corinthians were making the same mistake that many of us have made, many of us perhaps will make, but I want to warn you of that. And it's this mistake. They had equated personal outward magnetism with spiritual authority. They looked at these people and they thought, because they were impressive, that that automatically meant, automatically meant, that they had spiritual authenticity. But it doesn't. Some even in our day go so far as to equate personal magnetism with spiritual authority. That means if they talk good, and if they look good, and if they make me feel good, then automatically I'll give them my allegiance because they must be of God. Because those two things are one and the same. Now you may say, with your head, no it isn't. But let's not kid ourselves how important impressions are. How else can you explain the thousands of people that have followed some of the men who now even now fill pulpits where the facts are known that they are self-deceived and immoral. And yet because they talk good and because they look good, people will say, it doesn't matter how you live, you must have spiritual authority. And they follow them anyway. You know, that's a sickness. It really is. It's a sickness when you know that their life doesn't anywhere match up with their words, and yet we still give them allegiance. But that's how powerful looks and oratorical impact are, it seems, in the Christian community. Doesn't it? That you can just blind yourself to everything else. But that shows a sickness in my mind. But that's not true of our era. That was true of this day too. See, Paul faced the same thing. Notice what he says in verse 7. How he starts it. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Not as they really are, but as they are outwardly. Do you remember when Israel wanted a king? Back in the Old Testament, they never had a king, but because the nations around them had a king, they wanted a king. So they began to demand a king. And God appointed a king. Not just any king, the kind of king they wanted. And do you remember the kind of king they got? God gave them a king who was a man not of substance, 
but of stature. You know what his credentials were for being the king of Israel? They pointed out there in 1 Samuel, he was taller than any of the men of Israel. And he was very, very handsome. That's the kind of king they wanted. But that's how deep they looked, about this deep in the kind of leadership. And if you read the book of First and Second Samuel, you see that they paid for that kind of selectivity. Oftentimes, that is true in our day. And certainly in Paul's day, Paul was finding himself being benched spiritually for substitutes who looked better and who talked better. That's really what the issue was. I mean, if you'll notice there in verse 10, that's exactly what it says, doesn't it? For they say, and notice what they focus on, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Is that how you recognize, is that how you document spiritual authority on looks, on impact, at least as far as from a public viewpoint? You know, I don't want you to think that I'm against those things. But I really do think from time to time we need to hear those things. When that's all there is and what we are embracing is not anything deeper than just those surface issues, then spiritual authority is a joke. But what's worse is the joke is on us. And that's what Paul wants these people to do. Real spiritual authority can be recognized by matching two things together. And Paul mentions that here in this letter. And that is, this word, though in his case it was his word, but his word was this word at that point. But this word and a leader's life. Notice how he says it in verse 11. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word... We also are indeed when present. Take a look. Draw close. Look at me. Think about it. Have I said anything that I'm not in reality? That's what he's asking them to do. He's also asking them to use that same grid with these leaders that are now beginning to sway and seduce these people spiritually. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul makes an interesting statement. He says to the people, the church in Thessalonica, he says, you need to know those who have charge over you and who give you instruction in the Lord. The word know there is the word that implies intimate acquaintance with. It implies really getting to know the person to a place where they inspire trust, where you could give them your allegiance. You, they could come to you and talk to you about issues in your life, and rather than being defensive, rather than drawing back and saying, who are you? You don't have a badge? You don't have a gun? Who are you to tell me what to do? Rather than having that kind of reaction, the reaction is, you know, I know you really care for me, and I trust you. You have influence in my life. See, that's what the word obey your leaders in Hebrews 13, 17 is addressing. Not this demand that you follow me, but it's 
I want to listen to you because I trust you. I have confidence in you. So when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, know your leaders, what he's really asking them to do, just like he's asking here, he's saying, are they living out what they're preaching? Are, is their life patterned after what they teach? Do they do what they tell you to do? And have you seen marks of that? We're not talking about perfection here, but we are talking about a true spiritual authenticity. That's what he's addressing here. That's why he says in verse 11, and that's these are the pondering words of that passage, consider this. Do you see him there? Verse 11, consider this. Do their deeds match their words? That's how you can document spiritual authority. Secondly, how do you measure spiritual authority? Well, Paul tells us that in verse 8. And basically what he says there is you can measure spiritual authority, how much is there, by how much they serve. Notice what he says. He says, he says the authority which the Lord gave us is for building you up. Now here's what I want to add to that. Not for building me up. Building you up. The only authority which God gives leaders in the church is the authority to serve. That's it. The authority to build someone else up. And so when a leader in sometimes a difficult situation might come to you, who regardless of what level that leadership is, and want to talk to you about something that's going on in your life, the only authority that they bring to that moment is the authority of influence and the authority of service in which their intent is to build you up. That's all. Not to destroy you, not to take away things that would give you life, not to manipulate you, but to build you up. That's a true church with true, authentic spiritual leaders. Jesus said, The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. That's real authority in His kingdom. And I believe Paul mentions this so that once again these Corinthians who are feeling swayed to follow a different opinion might take what he has said about himself and might move that spotlight over on those who are now circulating among them. Paul said, did I serve you? One of the things we're going to see in chapter 11 is one of the ways Paul served them in this circumstance, he didn't do this everywhere, but he certainly did it at Corinth, is he came in and rather than asking them to give money to him to meet his needs, he basically made tents and was a tent maker so that he could gain even extra credibility in their life. Corinth was a very materialistic city. And he wanted to know that he didn't have any ulterior or hidden motive for self-gain. So he labored among them without cost. Now what we're going to find in chapter 11 is that these false teachers are going to actually turn that argument around, and this is basically going to be their argument. They're going to say, hey, we charge, and you ought to be glad we charge, because you know you get what you pay for. And so he's not charging you because he's not worth anything. 
That's why. And Paul's going to have to defend that in the next few chapters as well. But what Paul was doing, and these Corinthians knew it if they really sat down and thought about it, he knew that they knew that he, that, uh, he really loved them. He really cared about them. And that even things that might be painful to say to them were only done because he was trying to build them up. So in verses 7 through 11, he discusses spiritual authority. And here's basically just some, I guess, basic principles you can take with you. And it's these. Spiritual authority is primarily an authority of influence, not force. Secondly, spiritual authority can only be truly documented when you match a person's word and the scripture, this word, with how they live. And by the way, may I just exhort you all to be extremely cautious about documenting, encouraging, and even financially supporting ministries in which you can't document the lives of the leaders who lead them. so funny how people can give thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to somebody thousands of miles away and the only thing that they've ever seen about that person is how well they speak. Do you see what the issue is there? But they know nothing about their life. So important that you be cautious in that regard. And then lastly, the third thing that we've seen here is that spiritual authority grows the more a person serves. Well, let's change the subject and go back to verse 1 because he does change the subject and he moves from spiritual authority to really the issue of spiritual power. And in verses 1 through 2, Paul is going to talk about something he doesn't want to do and that's the exercise of his spiritual power. And I don't mean that again with carrying a gun or anything like that. But it's the kind of power that a leader has to do in extreme cases when he has to confront. And he's fearful that he's going to have to confront these people. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, Now I, Paul, urge myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. Now we know that that's not his words. That's really the false teacher's words. He's just quoting them. But here's what he says in verse 2. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now you're going, what in the world does that mean? Aren't you? Be honest. This is, you know, we've got to have some integrity here in the audience. What he is basically saying, and maybe I can help you see it by just looking at two words in verse 2. He says, I may not. And by the way, may not does not mean cannot. What Paul is saying is this. You know, my posture towards you, Corinthians, has been to serve you in meekness and in gentleness. That's what he means in verse 1. I've come in. I've not tried to force myself on you. I've not tried to force my apostolic authority on you. I've just served you and won your trust and your confidence over these years. But now... When I come, it's not that I cannot, but I'm praying that I may not have to give way my meekness to courage and confront those who are misleading you. That's what he's saying. And if you think that I don't have the guts to do it, 
Just wait and see. So that's what he's saying there. I have that courage, but I'm praying I may not have to use that courage. And I want you to know that spiritual authority, though it's an influence authority, and though it can't force anybody to do anything, it doesn't mean it's timid and it will not confront. I never forget, and some of you remember this as well, when a number of years ago, President Reagan came on TV. And you remember the background to that was that we had had a number of terrorist attacks in Europe and uh, there was all kinds of arms being shipped and many of those were being traced back to Libya. And he came on that evening in a national address to America and said that warplanes were moving over Tripoli at that very hour and bombing the city. And then he made this statement. He said, you know, Colonel Gaddafi believed that he could ship illegal arms into Europe and terrorize American citizens and slaughter innocent lives. But then, as only Reagan could, he kind of moved forward a little bit towards the camera and he said, but he thought wrong. Now I say that because from time to time there are some severe issues even within our own church. Just like there were here. Where confrontation is required. Where influence gives way to courage for the sake of salvaging spiritual life. And if you think there won't be people who will come forward, thought wrong because they will when I was in Florida last week I was with a group of pastors from a number of very influential churches in America and we were talking and it was over coffee and there was a couple of pastors talking about another guy's church I'll just call him Gary for the sake of not exposing him but they were talking about Gary's church and they were talking about how healthy and vibrant and alive and impactful his church was and one of the guys said boy they said I just love going to that body because the people are so compassionate and loving and gracious. And then the other guy said, yeah. And they also know that Gary and his elders will not turn their head when they see sin either. Did you know that's the ingredients of a great church? A great church is one where there's plenty of grace and compassion and love and generosity, but there are also limits and because the leaders have authenticity and purity in their own life, they will guard that purity jealously in the lives of the people as well. And they will confront it if necessary. They don't want to. Like verse 2, we hope we may not, but may not does not mean cannot. Now in the verses that remain, Paul becomes quite personal. And what he does is he gives us some insight into his own life and why he is the man he is. And this is what I want us to leave with because we can draw upon some of the insights that he gives in verses 3 through 6. You could kind of say they're a glimpse into his inner world. Look at verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. The great preacher, by the way, G. Campbell Morgan, said that these few verses, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, are some of the most remarkable verses about spiritual life in the whole New Testament. 
Sure, these false teachers had defamed Paul. They probably called him all kinds of names concerning his looks and his speech. He gives us a few of those over in verse 10 as we've already seen. But Paul was not the kind of person who would respond in the flesh. Oh, he was an ordinary human being like the Living Bible translates it, though we're, not, though we're just ordinary people. That's how it says it. Though he was an ordinary person, he didn't respond like an ordinary person. He responded as a spiritual person. He had been defamed. He had been maligned. His character had been assassinated. But what Paul's saying here is, is as much as that has happened, I'm not going to respond with the same weapons. He calls them the weapons of the flesh. I'm not going to defame those people. I'm not going to manipulate them. I'm not going to gossip about them. I'm not going to cut them down as far as their character. It's kind of like what I felt when uh, last week I was reading one of the newspapers and there was a, an article in there uh, about those who are reacting to the pro-life movement here. And one of the leaders of the National Organization for Women was kind of responding to the march last Sunday. And she called those who marched, this is her quote, anti-female bigots of the religious right. And I felt a little bit defamed. And gosh, when I read that, I just wanted to pick up some weapon of the flesh. But you know, when, when there's confrontation and where there's serious social issues like that that need to be addressed, you might advance your cause a little bit by picking up raw power of the flesh, defaming, exaggerating, falsification, overstating. But for us who are the church in reacting to those social issues, what we'll end up doing by doing that is we might advance the cause a little bit, but we'll lose the war. Because we'll sacrifice our spiritual integrity in doing it. And by reaching for the weapons of the flesh, we will lose our spiritual integrity. Sure, there are serious issues. But Paul says when there's confrontation, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh, but we war with weapons that are divinely powerful. What is he talking about there? Well, I think he is just referring to something he's already said in another letter, Ephesians 6, when he lists the weapons of the Spirit. He talks about what those weapons are. He says it's truth, telling the truth. He talks about peace, he talks about the Word of God. He says the Word of God is one of our weapons. Faith, prayer, those are the weapons that Paul drew upon in order to confront this very serious situation. He's going to stay within those because he believes they're divinely powerful. And he believes that can adequately address the issue and God can do the rest. But he's not going to step outside those things and do things that are coercive and manipulative in a way that might help win a little battle or two but then lose the war of what the church and Jesus Christ stands for. That's what he's saying. You know, that also applies to us personally. Not in issues out there, but in issues in here. And that's why he makes, I think, the next statement. He says, for the... For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. 
And in doing that, if you look back at verse 4, he says, we destroy fortresses. See, what works out there also works in here. And this is what I want to leave you with here this morning. Maybe you're not dealing with an issue out there, but maybe you are dealing with an issue that's personal to you. Paul calls those fortresses. The word for fortress is the Greek word prison. There are prisons. When I think about my life over a number of years, I know that within my life there have been certain prisons. And they're there because of what it says at the very start of verse 5. It's because there are speculations in my life. Now, that's an unfortunate word because that leads us off track. It's really the Greek word logizmos, which means logic or reason. One of the reasons there are prisons in my life, maybe prisons in your life, is because I've reasoned my, I've reasoned my way into them. Nobody's forced me there. It's just by my own human logic I've put myself there. Kind of like the Scripture says when it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the way therein is death. Boy, I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I had all my ducks in a row. I thought what I was doing, I was doing in a good way, though it may have defied the Word of God, I thought I could work it out, but all I did was build a prison for myself. You know, in verses 4 and 5, though it's not real obvious, Paul is painting a picture of a prison. If you look there at the verses for just a second, I'll show you what he, how he does that. He mentions in verse 4 the destruction of fortresses or prisons. So that image of a prison would immediately come to mind. And then he says, and we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing. The way the Greek is translated there, you get this picture, because what is the first thing you see when you come up on a prison? The walls, don't you? And every lofty thing, what's sticking out of a wall around a prison? See, these guard towers, isn't it? And I think that's really the picture Paul is spinning here, though it's not as obvious to us. He's saying, you know, you can create a prison, and it starts just through your own reasoning power. And then as you reason, there are going to be certain fundamental conclusions about yourself that you're going to come to that are going to guard that prison so nobody can get in. And those are the lofty things, notice, the lofty things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. I call those the essence statements that people live by. Let me give you some examples. Though people wouldn't go around saying this about themselves, I just know as I've watched people long enough that people are driven by little essence statements within them that they've decided upon for themselves, like, I must be in control. They never say that, but you watch their life and their whole life is driven to stay in control. Or I know what's best for my life. Nobody else needs to tell me. So they're driven by that guard tower. It guards the fortress. Or maybe it's I'm better than others. Or maybe I can't change. Or maybe the, the tower is people are there to make me happy. And so you're sitting there watching them in marriage counseling. And oh, they're acknowledging how they believe in Jesus Christ. But all that goes on, after a while you begin to hear this essence statement. And the essence statement in all this, this, this uh, 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 violence and upheaval in a relationship is because over one person's life you begin to read this 
tower that says, that person's there to make me happy. And it's slung up there against the knowledge of God because the Word of God is saying, no, they're not there to make you happy. You're there to make them happy. And they go, no, 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 no. And they can come up with all kinds of logic as to why their statement's true and not the Scripture. Right? You know that. And over time, they think they're building them a palace that's going to make them free. But what they're really building is a prison. And after it's all finished, they're not going to like what they got. Their lives are going to start deteriorating. And when they do, they're going to start, because they're not going to change those essence statements, they're going to start slinging all kinds of verbal abuse that it's everybody else's fault, operating by this very erred logic. But when you talk to them, they'll throw up all kinds of reasons why they're doing what they're doing. And it'll sound so good, but in reality, all they're doing is building the walls of their prison that much higher. And their guard towers just continue to climb. And they can't get out. Because it seems so right to them. But the scripture says, but the way they're in is death. That's what Paul's saying here. We are destroying this kind of reasoning and these lofty things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. We're not doing it just for issues out there with you Corinthians. This is how we live within ourselves as well. And it brings freedom. We use the weapons of the Spirit. Truth. Revelation not reason. I thought it interesting, and I've mentioned this before, that with all that we see going on in our world and all the sophistication that we have, that Alexander Solzhenitsyn would stand in front of the brightest minds in this entire country as he addressed the graduating class at Harvard. And he says, all our troubles can be reduced to one statement. Men have forgotten God. That's what Paul is saying. But he's saying that for our own lives as well. He's saying we need to remember that. That's my secret of my power. In fact, he goes on to say, let me show you how radical I am in that idea because at the end of verse 5 he says, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, Paul wasn't content in just breaking down his prison walls. He wanted to open up every cell in that prison and he wanted to take captive every unwholesome thought into obedience with the Word of God. You know, we haven't said much recently about thought life, but the Scripture says, as a man or a woman thinketh, so is he. Thoughts begin the process of life. I remember when I had a young man who became really one of my close friends uh, when I was living in another city and he had become a new believer and we used to meet every week and when we'd meet, we'd study the scriptures, we'd pray together with another group of men. Our families became close, we socialized together. And now I'm talking about a relationship now that's 15 years old so I can look back on this relationship. And he was so excited about Jesus Christ cleaning up some of the messes and there were some big ones in his life. But there were some thoughts 
he didn't want Jesus Christ to touch. Just some little things that he wanted to kind of keep over on the side. And he just wanted to daydream about those. He wanted to play with those. He wanted to contemplate those as unholy as they were. And he didn't want anybody getting too close. And every once in a while in our friendship, I would get right up on the edge of some of those things and begin to try to address them in his life. And he would pull way back. And he would kind of put up the bars and say, no trespassing. Well, 15 years have come and gone now. And some of those uncaptured thoughts, as I moved away and as we communicated, some of those uncaptured thoughts have started waging a little guerrilla war in his life. Robbing him of his freedom. Robbing of his single-minded intent to follow Christ. Robbing him of his joy, because that's what a guerrilla does. He robs the land of peace. Constantly in search of an insurrection. And my friend, unfortunately, has allowed that to go on so long that now there are new prisons in his life. And no one can get in because his logic is so solid. But the death smells. That's what we're talking about here. Every Christian who is soft in dealing with their thought life will struggle in real life. That's what he's saying. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's the secret. At least one of them, the spiritual power. Well, there are two things here in this chapter that I just think are worth remembering. Let me just recall them to you. We've talked about spiritual authority and spiritual power. And we've learned that real spiritual authority is one of influence and of service it doesn't force its way or bully its way. It persuades. And for those of us who stand in places of spiritual leadership, as I did looking at this this week, gosh, there's just a certain sense of fear and trembling that came over me. There's a real humility here in this passage that I just feel so unworthy of. I don't know about you. If you're a spiritual, you think of yourself as a spiritual authority. It's a scary place to be in light of these words. But for us who see ourselves as responding to spiritual authorities, there's some real admonition here. And that is that you must be clear about who you're willing to follow. You need to follow. But you need to be persuaded. You don't need to just give light attention to the fact of, hey, that guy sounds good, or that guy entertains me, so therefore I'll follow, I'll join. Because if you do that, you'll err in one or two ways. You'll either err like the Corinthians did in giving themselves all this allegiance to these false teachers who they really didn't know, or when the real teachers come and begin to address your life, you'll start resisting them because you don't know them. And you'll say, whether you say this right off the top, you'll be saying it in your heart, who are you? Who do you think you are? You don't have the right to tell me that. But if there's allegiance because of confidence, there won't be rebellion, there won't be conflict, but there'll be, as iron sharpens iron, one man helping lead another to a deeper walk with Christ. And then secondly, concerning spiritual power, maybe we can just ask some questions in ending. 
And that is, when there is temptation or hurt or conflict in your own personal life, whether it's in your marriage or with some business associate or whether it's with a friend at school or wherever it may be, what weapons do you draw first? Are they weapons of the flesh, anger, raw power, fist? Or are they the weapons of the Spirit? Prayer, truth, getting everything out there on the table, being honest, looking at what the Word of God says and says, I'm going to bring my feelings captive, every one of them, to the obedience of Christ. And then when you have wrong thoughts, maybe you just ought to ask, and this is just in the privacy of your own life, because maybe there are some rebels in there. You need to ask yourself, how ruthless am I, am, am I to go after those thoughts? To not let them create a counterinsurgency, but I'm going to wrestle with those thoughts and look at what the Scripture says until I bring them to a point of surrender to the obedience of Christ. See, if you do that, you're well on your way to a vibrant Christian life. Because a vibrant Christian life means that within yourself, you're bringing every thought captive. Just like a vibrant church, you have good spiritual leaders are clear and confident in those leaders because they know that those leaders have spiritual authenticity. Well, that's the word for us this morning. And I hope it will encourage and help you. And why don't we just bow now for a moment and take just a moment of silence and allow the Spirit of God now to do what He does best. And that means that He might bring an action point to your life. Maybe it's a thought you've been harboring and nursing. Or maybe it's somebody that you need to go talk to about their leadership. But whatever it is, if God speaks in the next few moments, don't resist. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.